So I, man, I've loved getting back into the gospel of Matthew and studying Matthew. It's, it is my favorite gospel. I've had a great time studying it. That's where we're going to be this morning. If you want to turn to Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. Interesting story uh, that I was reminded of this week. Philip Yancey wrote a book. It's called The Jesus I Never Knew. And uh, in his book, he tells a story about a professor, Virginia Stem Owens. She was actually a professor at uh, Texas A&M University. That's right. And... Um, in 1987, whoop, all right, well, that's the year I graduated, all right, the year I graduated, she was a prop at A&M, and uh, she gave an assignment in her class. She asked her students to read the Sermon on the Mount, and being in the Bible Belt, she anticipated that she'd get some pretty positive reviews of Jesus' most famous, famous discourse, right, but that is not what she actually uh, heard back from her students. Here are a few of the comments. The stuff the churches preach is extremely strict and allows for almost no fun. Now, you did say almost, right? (laughs) Almost no fun whatsoever. Another student wrote, I did not like the essay, Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. The things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman as adultery, that is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever heard. Sermon on the Mount. Good news or bad news? Surprisingly, uh, Dr. Owens was uh, not disheartened by what she heard. Later, she would write this. I began to be encouraged. There is something exquisitely innocent about not realizing you shouldn't call Jesus stupid. (laughs) I find it strangely heartening that the Bible remains offensive to honest, ignorant ears, just as it was in the first century. The Sermon on the Mount is actually designed by Jesus to be shocking. And for many of us, we've read it so many times that it doesn't shock us anymore. We say to ourselves, well, that's nice. But it's not supposed to be nice. It's supposed to be, at one level, actually pretty offensive. Pretty shocking to our own self-righteousness. And our own pride. This morning, what I want to do is I want to I overview the Sermon on the Mount. Right? It's, it's three chapters. It's uh, not long in terms of a sermon, but it's uh, quite a bit of text to cover. So what I want to do is I want to give you a survey of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, throughout the next couple of weeks, we'll be coming back and unpacking some of the details, but I just want to give you the big idea. And I think the big idea is this. You can never be good enough, but Jesus is more than enough. Okay? You can never be good enough, but Jesus is more than enough. All right, so I want to begin... Partway through the introduction of the sermon, chapter 5, verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 13. Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Deep in, in the Jewish psyche was this idea that they were the light of the world. Right? This was not a new concept in the Jewish mind. In fact, I have had Jewish friends through the years who don't even believe in God at all, but they are convinced that the Jewish people exist still to be light to the world. That's why they survived pogroms and inquisition and holocaust. 
because it is their place in the world through their, their culture and their intelligence and their ingenuity to ultimately set all things right. right. That's deep in the Jewish soul. It was embedded first with the promises made to Abraham. You will be a blessing, Abraham, to all of the nations. And we saw it reiterated in the formation of the nation. We looked at this a couple weeks ago, Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, where God said, you shall be a kingdom of priests to me and a holy nation. That is, you will be the conduits of all of my richest blessings to all of mankind. You will stand between me and humanity and bring blessing to the earth. When I establish my kingdom on the earth, I will establish it through you and blessing will be spread everywhere. And in fact, in a Jesus day, there was a group of people who, who believed that they would be right there with the king when the king came and established his blessing because they understood that the, the, in a sense, the governing structure of the kingdom of God would be the law and they were the experts in the law. Right? These are the scribes and the Pharisees, those who understood and practiced and lived the law. In fact, the name Pharisee means separated one or holy one. And they saw themselves as the keepers of the law, the righteous ones, and they looked out on everyone else. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. He wrote this about himself. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. A Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. How could Paul, how could Paul say that? How could he say he was blameless? Well, it's because the Pharisees broke the law down into uh, hundreds of different discrete commandments which they were able to obey. Right? They kept the big things like, you know, don't murder, don't commit adultery, but they also had all kinds of dietary restrictions and how they should wash their hands, particularly uh, the Sabbath. They didn't work on the Sabbath. They kept the Sabbath, and they made sure that they dissected that law in very difficult for others but easy for them ways to manage Right? Doable things, right? Uh, they couldn't spit on the Sabbath because when they would spit, the spit would hit the earth and it would create mud. And that was imitating God's act of original creation. That's work. So you can't spit on the Sabbath. And so Paul could say, uh, as to the law, as we have defined it, in the hundreds of manageable commandments, I'm blameless. And if a Pharisee accidentally violated one of those commandments, they would keep the law in a very careful manner to atone for that sin. Paul could say, I'm blameless. Pharisees are blameless. Pharisees are separate ones. We are holy ones. They were ones who were self-righteous. Righteous in themselves. The law was their life. The law was their life. And now what we see is Jesus is calling people back to obedience to the law. Read with me verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth shall pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So remember, here's the setting of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has walked up near the top of, of a, a, a ridge, a hill, 
Uh, not what we normally think of as a mountain, but that's how they described it in those days. It was a ridge, it was a hill, it was a slope that went down to the Sea of Galilee. He walks up to the top of it. His disciples see him, so they gather around him. He's got his 12. And there are hundreds of others who've been following Jesus, and so they circle around those. And amongst that crowd, there are scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus has just announced, do you want to be great in the kingdom of God? Keep the law, practice the law, teach others to do the law. And the Pharisees are like, yes, we've got this. That's us. And in fact, the disciples and the common people of the land probably would have looked at the Pharisees also and said, yeah, they've got this. They are, in fact, the standard of righteousness in our culture. And then Jesus says something particularly shocking, verse 20. He says, for now I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not even enter the kingdom of heaven. Forget about being great in the kingdom of heaven. You can't even get in unless you are more righteous than the most righteous people you have ever laid eyes on. (laughs) That was designed to be offensive. And Jesus wasn't the first one to offend them. Look back at chapter 3. Verse 7, John the Baptist, as he was preaching, he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for him, to him for baptism. And he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you, God can raise up from these stones children to Abraham The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What John the Baptist and Jesus are saying is that the most righteous people among you don't have a clue. The people who think that they are the best keepers of the law have no idea what the law is really all about. Hey, remember... A couple weeks ago, we said this, that the law had multiple functions. One of those functions was, in a sense, like a constitution for the people. As they were redeemed out of Egypt, they were just a, a large family, so to speak. Right? There were tribes and there were some loose affiliations, but they weren't a nation. They didn't have a governing structure, and so God gave them law that would teach them how to interact with one another, how to be a good society, how to interact with the peoples around them, and most importantly, how to interact with their God. So the law was a constitution, and even more importantly, the law revealed the law revealed the lawgiver himself, God. This is what your God is like. Not like the gods who are around you. Your God is holy. He is different. He is set apart. This is who he is. Consequently, the law revealed what sin was. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, Paul said, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. In other words, the law said, here's the line. This is sin and this is not sin. You want to clarify sinful behavior? This is how you avoid it and this is how you do it. The law made sin clear. It set clear boundaries. Now, could you then become righteous and earn eternal life through the law? No, well, that was not God's intention ever. That was not God's intention ever. The law was designed to make clear what sin was like so that in their generation they would know how do we live in right relationship with one another and right relationship with God and right relationship with the nations around us. But the law was just a set of rules. It couldn't actually reach down deep and change their hearts. 
And Paul goes on, 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, the law is not made for the righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. Okay, so let's, let, let's acknowledge the fact that mature people don't actually need rules. Right? Genuinely mature people don't need rules to live well. When uh, my kids were little, we gave them rules and consequences. And we were very clear because they were immature. They needed very clear boundaries. So I told my son, don't touch the stove. Don't touch the stove. If you touch the stove, there will be bad consequences. There will be, you will burn yourself. It will hurt. Don't touch the stove. Well, in human nature, right, we got to test that boundary. So I remember one day, very vividly, I was sitting in the kitchen. I was looking across. I saw my son. The stove was hot. And he looked at me, and then he began to reach for the stove. And I said, don't touch the stove. So he pulled his hand down, and he looked back at me. And then he began reaching for the stove again. I said, don't touch the stove. Pulled his hand down. He looked back at me. Reached again. I said, don't touch the stove. It will burn you. It will hurt. It will be a bad consequence. He looked back at me. And he stayed looking at me. And he began to reach the stove. Now, mothers, I just want you to relax for a moment here. Because okay, I've, I've told this story before. And I hear moms just, you know, gasping disbelief and I don't you know and don't let me finish the story before you call CPS right (laughs) so he began to reach and I didn't I didn't do anything but here's the deal I knew the stove wasn't that hot right I knew it wouldn't burn him but I knew it was hot enough that it would scare him and so I just watched him and he watched me and he went ah, you know, and he cried and he screamed and ah, you know, and he ran to me and I said, I told you so. And, you know, uh, and we put ice on it and, we, and you can check his hands today. There are no scars. He was not actually burned, but he learned, right? Because law is for the immature. I don't have to tell my kids today, don't touch a hot stove. I don't even have to tell them because they know because they've grown in maturity. Well, what's happening in Jesus' days, the Pharisees have reduced God's righteousness to a simple list of do's and don'ts, things that they can accomplish. And now along comes Jesus, and he is going to reinterpret the law for them. And he can do that. Why? Because he's king. In fact, chapters 1 through 11 are showing the authority of Jesus. Jesus is the king. And recall, there is no legislators, right? There's no Congress. There's no Senate. In the ancient Near East, the king was the legislator. So now along comes Jesus and he he says, you want to know what the law is really all about? You want to really understand the depths of the righteousness of God? Well, I'm going to tell you what God's righteousness is all about. So if you want to participate in the kingdom of God, you have to be righteous like this. Jesus' first point is this. God's standards are higher than ours. Or if I can put it a little more bluntly, the bad news is actually much worse than you ever imagined. Okay? The bad news is really much, much worse than you ever imagined. I want you to read with me chapter 5 and verse 21. Jesus says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, okay? But I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. Now, Jesus is going to give six examples out of the law to show them this is what 
the righteousness of the law was really all about. You've heard it said, but I say to you. It says, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now, question. Have you ever been angry with somebody? You ever called them a name? You ever thought about calling anyone a name? Here, let me put it a little more simply. Anyone in here have a sibling? Go ahead. Go ahead. You ra- oh, raise your hand. Everybody. Anyone who's got a sibling, raise your hand. Really, this is participatory. Okay, a few single children. Uh, in, okay, otherwise, this means you're guilty. <laughs> or you're guilty. Thou shalt not murder. Okay, I got that. So really, what the law was driving you toward was don't hate. Don't, don't even be angry. Be one who loves. Second illustration, verse 27. It says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Has anyone ever lusted after someone or something? Okay, that same group who raised your hands with siblings, you would be the same ones, right? Okay. Ever lusted about uh, for anyone or anything? Yes. Jesus says, it's not just about the act of unfaithfulness. It's about the unfaithfulness of your heart. Now, Ezekiel talked about this. In the, in the law, it says you shall have no other gods before me, no idols. But Ezekiel explains, you know, God wasn't just talking about stone and wood and gold and silver. He was talking about the things that we love and long for other than God. And now Jesus is illuminating the essence of the law is this. Don't lust for or long for anything other than God. Now, he is not saying that the consequences for these two things are exactly the same. Because the consequences for adultery in this life are greater than the consequences for lust in this life. More people are hurt and damaged in a very obvious way by adultery than they are by lust. He's not saying they're equivalent in the consequences. What he's saying is they're both sin. And any sin separates you from absolutely, perfectly, holy God. So, he says, if you think that you want to earn your righteousness and you think that you can in some way earn eternal life, then I'm telling you, it's not just about not committing adultery. You better start plucking out your eyeballs and cutting, out your, cutting off your hands. Is he actually encouraging such behavior? No, but he's saying, if you think you can earn eternal life through what you do, well, I'm telling you, you better gouge everything out. You know, gouge out that organ that causes you to look at another person and long for them and lust for them. Cut off that hand that allows you to reach out and take something that doesn't belong to you. If you really want to earn eternal life. Because the essence of the law is this, it goes past behaviors and down deep into the longings of our hearts. Third illustration, verse 43. 
says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And notice what he says here. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you want to be like God, that is, you want to be sons of your father, then love your enemies. Do good for your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Bless your enemies. Because that's genuine righteousness. And then he wraps up this section in verse 48 with another shocking statement. He says, therefore you are to be perfect just as your heavenly father is perfect. Men and women, that's not good news. (laughs) What does he mean by perfect? Well, anything that you can imagine in God, that's the standard. Be that. Good luck. Good luck. And then he moves on to righteous practices. Chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Who were the most righteous practitioners of the faith? Well, it was the scribes and the Pharisees. Their three primary practices, uh, giving to the poor, alms, prayer, and fasting. And Jesus will use each of these three as illustrations and he'll say, the best religious practice that you see out on the street today, it is absolutely and utterly worthless because it is hypocritical. Verse two, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. They are hypocrites. Externally they look great, but internally Their hearts are rotten. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do it just for the Lord. With no motivation for praise from others. When you pray, don't stand in the synagogue and sound loud trumpets and and get attention for yourself. Instead, go into into your, your inner room and pray just you and the father in secret. When you fast, get cleaned up, take a shower, shave, don't, you know, don't, don't let people know, oh gosh, what's wrong with you? Well, I'm fasting. You've missed the entire point. Right? He's hammering on the self-righteous Pharisees, but then he turns to the poor who also struggle with deep down righteousness, right? The, the, the Pharisees, they had leisure time. Right? They were wealthy enough that they could devote every day, all day, to the study of the law. They didn't have to work. And so they really weren't concerned about daily food and daily bread. They could just go out and practice righteousness for people to notice them. But the poor had other struggles. Chapter 6, verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? To the poor, he says, you know what genuine, deep down, true righteousness is? You don't worry about anything, ever, then you know you're really righteous. Anybody ever worried about something this morning, (laughs) right? Right, But if we've really been transformed by the genuine righteousness of God, it's not just that we look like people who aren't worried this morning. We don't actually worry because we trust our Heavenly Father, Verse 13 wraps up this section with another 
Stunning conclusion. He says, therefore, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are very few who find it ever. In fact, just one. Jesus. Only one has ever made it through. No one else has made it through the gate that leads to righteousness and eternal life. So you can't earn God's righteousness. You can't earn eternal life. You can't earn a place in the kingdom of God. As Paul would write in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What's the perfection, that teleos that he's talking about in 548? It's the glory of God. It's the very personality of God. What's the standard of righteousness? If you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, this is it. And you don't measure up. You don't measure up. In fact, Jesus teaches that our hearts are even darker than we can imagine, than we realize, or I would say that we even are willing to admit to ourselves. Turn to Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. Matthew 19, verse 16. So someone came to Jesus and he said, Teacher, what good things shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Okay, see his paradigm? What's his paradigm? There's something that I can do that merits eternal life. There's something that I can do that gets me into the kingdom. There's something that I can do that gets me a place and maybe even uh, prestige in the kingdom of God. I can earn this. So Jesus plays along with him. And he said to him, "Uh, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who's good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Wow. So what is Jesus saying here? And the man said to him, well, which ones? Well, he wants to prove that he's righteous, right? He wants to demonstrate to Jesus, in front of Jesus, and maybe those who are listening, that he has, in fact, measured up. So Jesus says, well, how about these? You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept. Anything else? In the account in Mark's gospel, it says at this point in time, Jesus felt love for him. Jesus felt love for him. He felt compassion for him. So it says, Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, same word that he uses in Matthew 5, verse 48. You want to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect? Uh, Let me just add just one more little thing. Go sell all of your possessions and give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. That's all. So, is Jesus saying, if you sell all your possessions, you can earn eternal life? No, 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 no. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus is using the law to expose sin. The man has kept his list of rules. He thinks he's kept all of them. He thinks that he is righteous in and of himself. And Jesus just asks him one more question that exposes that his heart is in fact very dark and loves something more than it loves God. He actually subtly uses the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. You shall not covet. To covet. Greed. Greed means, means to have more. This word for covet is the same word as the word for lust, actually. It's epithumia. It's lust. You shall not lust. You shall not covet. You shall not want more than what God has given. 
Jesus is just using the law to expose the depth of the man's sin. He's got external behaviors lined up, but inside in his heart, it's dark. Verse 22, it says, when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's actually easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard this, they were astonished. And they said, can anybody be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, well, actually with people, this is, is impossible. No. But, but with God, yes. Okay, God can, yes. And I've heard this taught before. Well, there, there was this camel gate in Jerusalem and the camels had to bend low and take off all of their baggage so they could get through the gate. False, right? There's no camel gate. No camel gate. This is a metaphor. In a sense, Jesus wants them to take this metaphor a little bit more literally. He's saying camels don't go through eyes of needles. It's impossible. It's impossible. But I have used, I, I've heard this, this uh, story used to beat up Christians. Right? If, you don't, if you don't give away all of your stuff to the poor, or at least be willing to, right? And I could say that today. If you don't give it all away to the poor, or at least be willing to give to the poor, then you might not, in fact, be saved. Men and women, that is not at all what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is doing with this man is he is exposing his heart. Because the fact is, you and I can clean up lots of our behaviors, but we can't fix the darkness in our hearts. We can't. When I was a little kid, my mom would say, clean up the room. And you know how I cleaned up the room most of the time? I took everything and I went, and I shoved it under the bed or I jammed it into the closet and she would come in to inspect, open the closet doors like, boo, whoa. Okay, we, there's a problem here. There's disorder, there's chaos. I walked in the room and it looked really wonderful, but no, in fact, you're a mess. You're a mess. Right? Jesus goes after the religious leaders on this over and over again. He says, you know, you know what people are like? You're like a cup that's really nasty and gnarly and dirty and you wipe the outside but the inside's just gross who would want to drink out of that or you know what you're, you're like you're like a tomb and you keep putting paint on the outside but if we open it up what do we find death we find death men and women that's that's us that's us right sin is not just about what you do sin is about who you are please don't be offended at me just be offended at jesus Sin is not about what you do. Sin is about who you are. There's some nasty, yucky, gross, snarly stuff inside the depths of your heart that you try not to let anyone else ever see, any other person on the face of the earth. But God looks down and he sees all of that. And you can't fix that. You are broken beyond what you could possibly recover from. So, there's the Sermon on the Mount, right? Uh, is it designed to make us depressed? No. It is designed to drive us to a sense of complete desperation where we relinquish all forms of self-righteousness and we grab a hold of Jesus. That's the point. Remember, Galatians chapter 3, Paul reminded us, another function of the law, it is our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. 
faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any good work you think you may do because your righteous deeds, your best, they're just on the outside. They're like filthy rags because your heart hasn't been fixed on the inside. That's the point of the Sermon on the Mount, to drive you to Jesus and Jesus alone and relinquish all forms of self-righteousness, right? So third, Jesus teaches this. God's chosen king is our only hope. Only Jesus. Look at chapter five, verse three. These are the opening lines of the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes, the blessings. Jesus starts his sermon like this. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who, are, who, who acknowledge their absolute spiritual bankruptcy. I have nothing. Now let's talk. Reminds me of Jesus' words to the church in Revelation chapter 3. It says, you say, I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That's kind of offensive. (laughs) That's kind of up in your face. You are, in fact, wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And that's the starting point of genuine righteousness and true spirituality. You come to Jesus and say, just as I am. And I have nothing. In fact, what I bring is kind of nasty. And Jesus says, that's why I came. He'll go on in the Beatitudes and he'll say, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness because you will, in fact, be satisfied. So how do we apply this? Uh, If I can't ask the the men to go back and prepare uh, for communion as we uh, make application, what's the point of the Sermon on the Mount? Do this and you will live, right? If you're, if you're this righteous, this is the standard, and then you can earn eternal life? No. The de- it's to demonstrate that the standard is beyond anything that you can touch. You can't reach it. Right? In other words, you can never be good enough, but Jesus is more than enough. So my prayer throughout this week, as I read and I reread the Sermon on the Mount, my prayer was this, that we would, we would have a, a, not just an intellectual moment this morning as we're looking at this sermon, but also a moment with our hearts, with our minds, our will, our emotion, that we would say, I can't be good enough. That we would be humbled before the word of God and his righteousness. And in a sense, not be really depressed about that, but, but be freed. You're free. You can stop. You can stop striving and trying. Because Jesus is enough. He's, he gave his righteousness to you. It's a gift. And so if you've never reached out to, to Jesus and said, thank you, thank you that I, have, I can now stop even just this morning for the first time trying to attempt to be righteous in front of you. Instead, I can just reach out and say, thank you. I receive your righteousness in place of all of the gross stuff in my heart. I encourage you to do that this morning. That is, that is the gospel message, which is first offensive, right? It's first bad news and then it's good news. But, but we won't want Jesus and sense our need for Jesus and then we, until we really sense how deeply we, we, we are broken. And that was my, my first prayer. Particularly for any of you who, who have not yet for the first time trusted in Christ. But I will also say to you church who you believe for a long time, it's easy for us to drift back into self-righteousness. Yeah, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. But now I'm really getting pretty good at this. And we begin to, to, to get back in this uh, paradigm of, of working for the pleasure of God when we, in fact, have the pleasure of God through Jesus. 
And I think that genuine righteousness that he's putting out here, in a sense, is it's almost visionary, right? I, I look at the Sermon on the Mount and say, you know, it's, it's not a, a standard to, to earn eternal life, but there is a vision here that's really appealing and attractive to have this kind of righteousness. Notice how he concludes the message. Verse 24. It says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. He said, yeah, you know, that's, I want that life. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house. It was crushed and great was its fall. And when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Jesus could say, thus says the Lord. And when they heard this sermon, on the one hand, it was so deeply humbling. But on the other hand, it was really richly inviting. That's what righteousness could actually look like in my life, right? I'm just not keeping a bunch of rules. But actually, I want to love my neighbor. I want to give to my neighbor I I want to long for more and more and more of Jesus. That's what deep down transformational righteousness can be. And that's what only Jesus can provide. Because the moment you trust in him, he removes that debt of sin, but he also places his spirit in you, which longs within you for the righteousness of God. It's transforming. So as the men come forward and they service the elements, I'd like for us to take just a few moments silently, again before the Lord, And give him thanks for Jesus, our righteousness. Give him thanks for Jesus, who is the one who gave us also the spirit to transform us. So we're not just people who behave well, so to speak, but people who really love the things that matter. So let's take a few moments silently before the Lord, and then we'll take the bread and the cup together. Romans 10, verse 4, it says, Christ is the end or the completion of law-based righteousness for everyone who believes because he lived a perfect life. And as a result, he died uh, our death, right? The death that we deserved, but a death that compl- com- completely erased in God's eyes the penalty for all of our sins because of his perfect righteous life, a life that we could not live. Right? He lived that life on our behalf and then died a death on our behalf. He is our substitute. And communion is that reminder, right? It's a reminder of him giving body and blood, giving all giving everything for us. Let's take the bread together. The bread is a symbol of his body broken, his suffering. The cup is a symbol of his blood poured out for us. Let's take the cup together. Jesus, thank you for giving all on our behalf. Thank you for paying a debt uh, that we owed so that we could be released from sin and death. So that we could, in fact, now begin to experience and live in your righteousness relinquishing our own righteousness instead just claiming yours for ourselves thank you for that Jesus let's pray Father we admit we were defeated by sin and death but we are triumphant in Jesus we're triumphant only in Jesus and I pray that this week we would walk in the strength power of Jesus triumph. I pray, Father, that this week we would long for a deeper righteousness that only your spirit can produce. I pray that we would be dissatisfied with superficial righteousness. We would long for that transformation that only Jesus can make in our hearts. 
It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week living in the righteousness of Christ.